0: This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation channel 156.
1: Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, I'm going to react to some Dana White audio in an interview he did with Yahoo Sports' Kevin Ioli. Plus, we're going to talk to Rashad Holloway. He's a former boxer-turned-trainer and coach to Tony Ferguson. That's a ton of fun. Uh, the Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays, 3 p.m. East Coast time, right here on SiriusXM Fight Nation, channel 156. Don't forget about the mailbag, lukeThomasShow at gmail.com. We got Dana White speaking with Yahoo Sports' Kevin Ioli. Now, uh, I've not there's video of this. I've not seen the video. So I'm told that the video tells you about his. It tells more of the story than merely the audio. There could be smiles. There could be frowns. We'll get to that part in just a minute. But in any event, I want to play this audio and kind of react to it. So it's weird. It's like Dana's like, I don't want to talk. I'm not telling the media anything. And then you keep doing (laughs) interviews. Now, granted, the interviews, I guess, serve a function, right? Which is I'm not going to tell you anything I don't want to tell you. And I am going to remind everyone of things that I do want to tell you. So when he says, I'm not telling the media anything, he means anything that they or that he perceives that they might criticize or examine in a way that he doesn't want it to be examined. It's also weird, right? It's like the UFC is an organization that legitimately has many things to brag about. Many, many things to brag about. And when they have something to brag about or at a bare minimum be proud of, they tell you. They, 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 they don't hide it at all, nor should they. This is not a request that they do that. This is not a, a plea for false humility. It's not what any of this is, but at the same time, it's a little weird, right? It's like the, they're going through the commission now, which is different. They've got the blessing of the mayor and the governor in Florida, which is completely different. Whether or not what they're doing is safe and blah, 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 you know, nobody really knows. I guess, as I've said before, we're just going to find out. But if you really believe in what you're doing, granted, I get keeping some things close to the vest, but the repeated need to not say anything, I mean, the only people who really do that typically, now not always, but typically are those that know that if they went and broadcasted what they were doing, it would get picked apart for reasons that would be potentially bad for them, but the the picking apart aspect of it would be somewhat understandable. Right? I mean, if you've got <laughs> if you've got something that is just great and you're ready to show it and ready to brag about it, you want to tell the entire world about it. If you're a little bit more skeptical about how the world might receive it, you you keep those things close to the vest. Again, not in totality, but in general. And so, you know, when 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 they've got something to brag about, which is for the most part, you know, let's say pre-march or whatever, when the world got turned upside down, a lot of things they had to brag about. Um, but there's parts that they we're in now where it's like I just don't understand some of the. I don't. I guess I. I don't want to let my jaundiced view of the world in general overcolor their perspective here. It's just unusual to constantly say things like, "I'm not going to tell the media when you're putting on shows, three of them in ten days." And there's just still many aspects to all of this that nobody really understands. And it's not about telling Kevin Ioli or me or Brett Okamoto like we in particular are owed something. It's about telling the public and, and, and then letting the media have some examination of it. If, you're, if everything you're doing is beyond reproach, which for the most part in their company's history, since they took over, that's usually the case. It's a little bit of a weird backtrack now. But okay, let's get into it. This is Dana White speaking with Yahoo Sports. Is Kevin Ioli? He says that they were never not going to regulate on April eighteenth at Tachi Palace. Let me hear that.
0: It's not that nobody was going to regulate it. Well, you know, when, when we uh, when we travel, uh, you know, to other countries, we sell. We have Mark Ratner, and you know, our uh, our safety record is literally perfect. So we were never going to not regulate.
1: Right, well, they might have self-regulated. I mean, this is the whole point. When they go to certain places, it's true. If there's no existing commission there, then they do they undertake self-regulation, which no one really has an issue with. It's like, dude, if there's not a commission, what are you supposed to do? Just not go there. I suppose that's one answer. But no, everyone is okay with them doing it. The problem is trying to do that here. So they might have brought in all of the bells and whistles that they take overseas. But to do that when the existing state commissions aren't running as an end around, it, it creates some weird complications because if, if that's the case and you can just go to places where you don't need them anymore and you can just self-regulate even though you have a license and then this long-standing effort to run towards regulation, it creates some issues for the ABC about why they are needed at all in the various state athletic commissions. So it's not that they were going to do nothing. No, That's not the argument. The argument is not that we're just going to show up and be like, well, screw it, we're just not, you know, we're just going to do what the hell we want. They were going to follow probably every practice that they had before. And it's not like, again, to his point, he's right. It's not like that's some – safety record's perfect. I don't know about that. I mean, everyone's getting hurt on all these cards. But, yes, in terms of following the letter of the protocol, sure. But that's not the point. The point is you do that when there's no state apparatus, not when there is. Um. Talks here about getting back on track. Uh, And by the way, I've been seeing this now. You saw over the weekend, the NBA uh, in cities and states where some of the social distancing guidelines have been relaxed. They've encouraged the teams in those cities to open up some of the practice facilities, which I think is a good idea. That seems more about getting guys reps that they need potentially in the gym versus other stuff. But, uh, okay, fine. That's interesting. I saw today, Bundesliga, which granted Germany's done a phenomenal job in containing this, they're going to open up, um, they're, they're thinking about resuming things, I think, in May. I saw that the, the, uh, the I forget his official title, but someone who's involved in sports in the government in Italy, they want to resume training in May as well, over in Syria. So you're beginning to see people, now whether it's advisable or not, You're beginning to see people at least start to entertain what it might be, what it might take to get folks back to training. Maybe Bundesliga will have games. But I've often said UFC is right when they say they're going to be first. There's no doubt in my mind they're going to be first. Again, not all of these reasons for that are necessarily good. But I think in general, we can all agree uh, if any sport has the capacity to get going, granted with no gate, but at least to have the sport take place. MMA is probably going to be one of those ones that comes first. I've never taken issue with that per se.
0: We have to figure out how do you get things back to normal, but do it in a really safe way. Mm-hmm. The only way to find out is to get out there and start doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to spend a lot of money. This isn't going to be cheap. It's going to be expensive. Um, every time that that uh, you're worried about safety, health, and safety of everybody—the fighters, right. the you know, the commission, the referees, the my staff—that's going to be there. It's not cheap, it's, it's, it's uh, expensive, it's hard, but somebody's got to take the first step and get out there. Can't Are just stay in houses till next December.
1: I mean, I think that's halfway true, right? It's halfway true that on some level, somebody's got to get back out there and just and just try. And in that sense, everything he's saying, I think, is right on the money. On the other hand, there is a part there where I'm a little bit more skeptical, which is, you know, you, you, the only way to figure out what's safe and not is to get out there and try. That is partly true, which is to say it doesn't matter how much care you took. The first show back is going to be, everyone's going to be on pins and needles about this, and you're going to make some mistakes. Again, I'm not saying necessarily catastrophic ones, but things you might tighten up on one end, and then you might realize some of the things you did were they don't they don't serve any value. Well, we can lose some restrictions there. So it's about making adjustments to the protocol, and that happens Through trial and error. That part is absolutely true. The only issue I've ever raised there was in trying to get these shows going. And then they all got canceled because the world governments were shutting down. We're talking like after UFC Brasilia. The only issue I really raised there was, you know, in a matter of a week or even less, they had come up with a safety protocol for that April 18th show. And some of the things that they had gone through were pretty smart and, and full of ingenuity and clever. On the other hand, it was like, do I really think that rushing to create protocol in a non-transparent way, remember, because if the commission does it, it's going to be open to the public. Everyone can go take a look at it. And to just like you know, launch into the void, that way, is that the best way to do it? He's right. On some level, no one really knows until you try. The only concern I think some people have raised is take your time to come up with that first level, first effort criteria. And that's what makes this May 9th show a little bit more interesting. Well, now they've had extra time. Now they've got the state government involved. Now they've got the mayor. Now they've got the governor. Now they're in a bit of a different situation. Doesn't make the questions about what is safe and what isn't any less difficult to answer. But that was the real complaint around April 18th. It was they were just rushed into it. Oh, we figured it out. But it's like there's been no oversight of this process. This is where the self-regulation comes into effect back to the first part. Oh, it's the same thing that we do overseas. Yeah, well, not really, though. Because when you go overseas, you know everything. Like, what is the protocol for stopping the spread and preventing the spread anyway of, let's say, HIV when fighters fight? Look at the protocol that we have in existing states. And when the UFC borrows that, turns out that's a pretty good policy. Like, they've never had an issue that I'm aware of where somebody got it. Because the screens that they have in place, the protocol they have in place, is really good. It's really good, and it works. Um, But that's what's known. When it's unknown with an unknown threat, or at least a poorly understood threat, and a new set of protocol, taking your time to come up with something, I think is what's right. Taking your time to come up with something, that's where you really got to, and and you're not going to get every part of it right up front. But just rushing into it, I think, was what folks had the issue with. Um, I guess he rips the media here because, no, actually, you know what? Let's go to this one part first. What safety precautions is he taking?
0: First of all, we, we submitted a, a very comprehensive 30 page document to the, to the governor of Nevada on how to how we're gonna uh, you know run the sport not just the sport but our office once we get you know our employees back in here working again. Um, you know I care very much about the fighters. I care very much about my staff, obviously my family, we're gonna do everything way up here. You know, we, we, we always do. Health and safety is an issue for us for the last 20 years. You know, there's a lot of companies and a lot of businesses out there that now the health and safety of their employees is something new right. that they need to, you know. It's not new for us. This is something that we, you know, not only uh, deal with on, on a weekly basis, but we, we take great pride and the fact that we have such sure. a great track record.
1: Yeah, and look, the UFC's had to deal with a set of occupational challenges, unlike other, <laughs> even other sports businesses, to be quite honest with you. They have to deal with things a lot of other sports and other major companies would never have to dream of. That part is true, but I would love to see that 30-page report. I would love to see the ingenuity of it. I would love to see what it says that's good. I'd love to sort of critically consider the different aspects of it as it relates to safety for the office, for the fighters, for the events. Again, it's not it's not a question about bringing them down. It's a question of don't we all think through some kind of? It's not it's not a collaborative process in the way in which a set of teammates go together to figure out a problem. But in general, if you come up with a set of solutions and you test them against scrutiny in general if the scrutiny is at least good faith and of course some of it will not be but if, if it's some of it is good faith and you can make some changes and adaptations to it it's actually going to make it better right i mean usada came out with their initial set of protocol and i'm not here to, to say that it was my criticism that got it change but there was enough industry-wide where they realized there were some problems there and they made adjustments to it now they should have made those adjustments up front, but because they just decided to roll in there with protocol that no one had a chance to look at ahead of time or debate or, or weigh the merits of, it just got rolled out. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't by itself altogether bad, but it wasn't necessarily all that great either. And it was only through trial and error, but through public scrutiny that these things got a little bit fixed, right? So that's really what the issue here is. It's not about stopping them. Dude, if the UFC puts on shows, that is better for me. If you are listening to this or you're watching this right now, if the UFC is putting on shows, chances are that's better for you. What we what we want to avoid is a situation where we've not fully altogether thought this through. And being the first ones back means you've got a huge responsibility there. And then for something to go wrong, because if something goes wrong, well, then you have lost all of your progress. What, would, what would be the value in that? What would be the value in having to backtrack on everything? What would be the value in having some kind of PR disaster? I don't understand. That would, be, that would be terrible. One of the challenges of being first is that it's an enormous responsibility because no one can expect a completely perfect execution, especially in a scenario like this where we just don't know much about this, which, of course, would make you think that maybe you should be more prudent in waiting. But different discussion for a different time even when you want to come back you have to be very 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 careful and in being very careful you have you have to realize if you get it really wrong uh it could backfire for not just you but for the entire industry right i mean it, would, it could be major consequences for not getting this part right in any event uh he doesn't I, i'm sure he is concerned with it. if they have a 30 page paper that they've submitted to the governor of Nevada i would love to see that i would love to take a look at that and, and clearly, they're trying to pull the levers of government behind the scenes, which is their right to do. Still, uh, you know, a, a lack of transparency over what their endeavors are, uh, you know, unless convinced is best for getting it right. I'll just put it that way. Now, Kevin Ioli apparently presses him on saying, you didn't say anything about COVID testing, and I guess Dana took it to the media here as well. Let's hear this part.
2: You did not say, yes, you were going to test everybody. And I guess that's the thing that people want to know, that, you know, hey, I think people feel a lot better about it if you say, yes, Kevin Ioli's in that arena, he's going to be tested. Dana White's in that arena, he's going to be tested. And and I, I guess that's the thing. And you and you seem to be hesitant to say yes.
0: Yeah, I, I, it's not that I'm hesitant to say anything. I'm just not telling the media anything. <laughs> not telling them anything. It's, you know, basically, I, I told you, Health and safety is important. It's always, you know, whatever with us. Just the, 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 the more you put out there, the, the, you know, it's going to be on ESPN. There aren't going to be any fans there. No, You know, there, there's not going to be, the, the, there's 15,000 people inside this arena that are going to spread out throughout the country and, okay. you know, all this other crap. So we're putting on an event. It's going to be
1: safe. Yeah, I mean, these assurances are not very reassuring. Again. I'm not here to relitigate. Everyone at this point has all the information that they need. You're either on, you know, in favor of it going forward or you're not, or you've got whatever your position is, it's solidified at this point. Let's put it that way. But you're just saying, it's like, can you imagine going to your teacher in the morning and you go to calculus and old Jaime Escalante is sitting up there at the top of the class and says, you know, did you solve the equation Uh, or even the expression? Did you narrow it? And, yep, you know, professor, I certainly did. Okay, great. What's your result? I'm not telling. Can you show your work in any capacity? No. Uh, You know, did you solve it or not? The answer is, we can't say that you didn't, but until you prove that you have, (laughs) what are you supposed to do with that? What are you supposed to do with a statement like, I'm not telling the media? It's not about telling the media anything. It's about telling the public. That's the whole point. You're not telling me. Kevin Ioli, Brett Okamoto, Errol Ben Folks, whoever. You're not telling us anything. Fine. It's just about laying out in detail for the public to consume and make informed choices about and better understand and perhaps provide what could be critical feedback about what you're attempting to do here. That's it. When everything stays in-house, blind spots begin to emerge. That's the point. All right. What are you going to do? All right. He says... Actually, gives some details about the next few cards. Let me hear this.
2: So this isn't the only uh, event that's going to be in uh, Jacksonville. So you're going to do two more that you announced, potentially three more. Is that correct? Three total. Three total. Okay. Yeah. So So the 16th... Three
0: total fights that we're going to go Monday, Wednesday... I'm, I'm sorry. Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday saturday wednesday saturday and then uh we're going to come back the 23rd but that one won't be in in uh florida
2: the shows uh on wednesday and saturday after the may 9th show are they going to be pay-per-view or are they just going to be espn shows
1: i don't know the answer to that yet yeah that's the part i'm wondering too we know the one for 249 is obviously going to be a pay-per-view i would i would I mean, if I'm ESPN, would you not want them to say, "Hey, get that off the plus and put it on the linear TV"? I would. I would imagine that they will do that. I mean, I'm guessing. I have no. I have, I have no inside knowledge about that. But if they're airing horse, you know, <laughs> and anything else they can just to fill airtime, uh, then that's my hunch is that ESPN is going to want that content. So we'll see how it goes. We'll obviously update you when we figure that out and when we hear rather. But okay. Now, Dana makes a point here that I really agree with, which is the economy is going to be hurt for a while. Um, And that means there's not going to be a gate for a long time. Let's hear it.
0: Yeah, the economy is going to
1: affect everybody.
0: I, I have three jobs I need to take care of my employees, I need to take care of my fighters and i need to get uh i need to get the sport back on track for the fans. Mm-hmm. Those are the three things that i'm concerned with every day you know in operating my business. Obviously the world is going to be different. So i've i've been thinking far ahead into the future and how this is going to I don't expect to have a gate for a very long time. So i mean i've already thrown that out the window. So you have to look at all the different things um you know, people think that I don't take this serious right. because I'm, I am i wanna come back so fast and all this other stuff. Not that I don't take it, I take it very serious. I don't plan on having a gate for a very long time. And, uh, you know, things like going into the week of where we have open workouts and all these things that we do for the fans. The, the fans are gonna, it's like, everybody wants to ask me location, location, location. Location doesn't even matter anymore. Right. It's on ESPN. It's all you need to that's all you need to know and all you need to care about.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's great. It's good that he is finally um Look man, the reason why some people thought what they did about uh whether or not he was taking it seriously. It sounds like he is now because the business reality has sort of set in like these governments aren't just going to open back up tomorrow. Um leading the charge is not going to convince Scared people to come back to businesses. Or, like how whatever your feelings about the coronavirus, everyone else has feelings about it too, many of them in positions of power, and they're taking a you know, what do you want to call it? Conservative approach, cautious approach, whatever you want to call it, to reopening. And I think that has begun to set in. They're making business plans accordingly. That's good news. There's nothing wrong with that. I think what some people are saying about it all though is. The reason why Dana White might get labeled, or at least why he might perceive he's being labeled as someone who's not taking it seriously is because he has continuously expressed comments, um, you know, about, you know, when he, comparing it to cancer, one, and then how this is all kind of crazy that governments are doing this. It's like, dude, why is it crazy the governments are doing this? There's no vaccine. There's no antiviral treatment. It's incredibly contagious and relative to the flu, much more deadly, much deadlier. Uh, yeah, of course they're going to shut things down. They have no vaccine and no antiviral viral treatment. This is the only way to stop it is to pull people apart, isolate them, and close borders. That's it. We don't, we don't, <laughs> there's no other mechanism to fight it. Uh, not not that we know of. Not not that we, we can be certain is as effective as that. Now, of course, that carries its own set of risks and consequences, which we're all going to have to deal with those as well. But So, so when you say things like that, That's why you might get labeled as someone who's not taking it seriously. Clearly, if they're submitting a 30-page paper to the government in Nevada and they're trying to come up with solutions, they're taking it much more seriously than I think they were. Like headed to UFC Brasilia when the rest of the sports world in America anyway had shut down, and you go there and you don't do any COVID-19 testing, and that was your plan for for UFC London as well. Yeah, I mean that's why you're you might get labeled that way. Doesn't mean that's the the situation he's in right now, but I could sort of understand from a different from that perspective. Um, why some of why he might feel that way? All right, so let me hear this part. Um, no layoffs at the UFC. Let's hear this part.
2: No layoffs at UFC. None of my people will be laid off. Okay, not happening. And then secondly, to that, what about the fighters? Are they getting a stipend? Are they getting uh, any kind of money? Are you paying them? Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're working out. So people who miss their fights, we're working out a whole deal for those guys, and,
0: uh, and we're working on all this stuff.
2: So like, so just, I just want to understand it. Um, let, let me tell you what, people, pe- people, people like to talk shit, Kevin. And,
0: uh, you know, people think they know me. They don't know me. They don't know anything about me. If, if you, if, let me tell you what, you find out who the real people are when shit goes bad. Mm-hmm. Everybody's great. When everything's good and everybody's making money and, you know, all this other stuff is going on. And, and, and you can make lots of promises to people when everything's good. You find out who the real people are when when things go wrong in your life personally or pandemics or whatever. Let me tell you what. All the people that are with me are with me and and I I will always take care of my people.
1: Okay. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't really have a response to that. There's not not a whole lot there to respond to. Um, Are they going to (laughs) do stimulus checks? Let me see if I understand this. We're not doing stimulus checks. We're
0: we're back up and running um, is what we're gonna do. And and, and, you know, a lot of people are losing their jobs and can't pay their bills and can't do things like that. When you're with the UFC, we're moving forward. You're gonna continue to work. You're gonna continue to make money. You're gonna continue to feed your family, whether you work here at the offices or you fight for the UFC. Um, You know, a, a lot of the media, we're going crazy about me trying to pull off that fight last weekend. A lot of the media are going to start getting laid off pretty soon. This is just the beginning. And and we haven't even had talks about going back to normal yet. Of course. But when we go back to normal, it's going to be a very long time before things are normal again.
1: So I've not seen this video clip. I'm told, and I've not seen this, I'm told that he smirked when he talked about media getting layoffs. I don't have a comment about it because in that sense, because I did not see it. Uh, and even if he did, it, you know, look when Dave Meltzer criticized the UFC's ratings after UFC on Fox three, that was Nate Diaz versus Jim Miller. Dana white may, went out and made a response video where he um, essentially mocked Dave Meltzer for losing his job after being laid off from Yahoo. So if he did smirk, it would certainly not be the first time he has, I don't know if taken delight is the word. Didn't seem overly burdened by the idea that media members who had criticized him had subsequently lost jobs. If in fact that's the case, I'll say this though: he's not wrong. <laughs> he ain't wrong. He is not wrong. There, he on on every everything he said about that smirk or or not, he's not wrong. The media business is going to take a dramatic hit. It already has to, to for certain people. That's going to continue. Um. That's going to go be in MMA, outside of MMA, sports, outside of sports. It, you know, there are going to be por- portions of the media that are going to benefit a lot from this coverage. Um, but there's going to be a huge portion that doesn't. And in particular, the ones that are based on the advertiser model, which is the overwhelming majority of them. Uh, subscriber model too, but uh, the first wave of major hits will happen on the advertiser model. But uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's not wrong about that. But of course, that's the argument that everyone tried to to make, which was uh, the people who in media might be telling you that going forward with an April 18th UFC 249 show is not a great idea, they're also the ones who are putting their livelihood at risk to a degree or at least speaking out against their own interest by saying that show shouldn't happen. That was somehow considered to be not true. It's absolutely true. And that absolutely happened, and that's absolutely real. Uh. He's not wrong about those layoffs. There's a major site in MMA right now that's dealing with major furloughs. Those guys have not come out and said it publicly, but they've told me privately. Um, we'll see what happens with... Uh, there's been some layoffs, certainly, in at, at other major companies all the way through, and there are plenty, plenty more coming. He's not wrong about that. Whether or not you want to take glee in that, different, different scenario, but he's not wrong. He absolutely is correct. All right, let me, get, let me burn through these if I can. Uh, he discusses Fight Island here it's in a spot where I knew I could get international people in. It's about getting,
0: again, you you take your business and you break up all the different sets of problems you have with something like this going on. Our biggest problem is how do you get people, you know, flying here in the United States is tough enough right now. Right. They've canceled tons of flights. If you want to go from like New York to Vegas, you're going to have two or three stops, and some of these stops are overnight. Right. So imagine trying to get people in from different countries all over the world with visa and all this other stuff. So you get an island and you can fly anybody in and out of the island. All
1: right. And then uh, what will it it look like to the viewer? Let me hear that part.
0: The infrastructure is being built right now. And, uh, you know, there's going to be an octagon on the beach for people to train. There's going to be training facilities. There's going to be... You know, it it literally is being built right now. It's like if you look at the apex, Mm -hmm. right? You toured the apex. You know how we built it and designed it for fighting, right? Right. We can do lots of other things there from uh, concerts, comedy shows, whatever it might be. But it's designed for fighting. Mm -hmm. We are designing this island to fly people in from all over the world to fight.
1: Want to bet when that thing is ready, they're going to tell the media all about it? I mean, they already kind of are to a degree. They're not telling us location or whatnot. But when that thing is ready, you want to bet everyone and your brother that they're going to tell the media all about it. And why wouldn't they? Because that, I mean, why, why wouldn't you? Of course, you would. But this is my whole point. It's like when they have something they're very comfortable about sharing, uh, for all the right reasons, they do. And if you're comfortable with your safety protocol, you might want to share that too. But that's just me thinking out loud. Uh, last but not least, there's a question about quarantining here for fight island fights? Let me hear this part.
2: A converse question, if people from the U.S. go out to go to this event, will they have trouble getting back in? So is it going to be only international fighters fighting there?
0: Yeah, that, that's obviously going to be a problem too. You know, the, the whole if you leave, you got to quarantine and all this stuff. It's probably something that we're going to have to deal with. Yeah. Me too, I'm going over there. I'm probably going to have to quarantine for two weeks before I come home. I don't know, but this, this, this is going to be the new world that we live in. That part is true.
2: That part is true. This week on World of Basketball, Australia's five-time Olympian and FIBA Hall of Famer, Andrew Gaze, explains how the 1992 Dream Team helped change basketball
3: around the world.
2: Well, I think first and foremost, basketball became the most
1: watched and one of the most significant events of the 92 Olympics because of it. And the way in which the, the culture of basketball and the popularity of basketball is growing That what it also did is that we knew that they were going to dominate, but it gave the rest of the world a chance to compete against these players.
2: New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app and Pandora.
1: Let's go now to our uh, interview for this hour. We spoke to Rashad Holloway. He's a coach and trainer of Tony Ferguson, former boxer himself, who Tony had befriended. We pick his brain about his background in this part of the interview, um, as well as how he met Tony and how he got to work with him. It's a fascinating conversation. Let's get it started. All right, joining me now on the hotline is a, uh, well, his bio says, retired boxer and coach to Tony Ferguson. But he's a lot more interesting than just the bio and social media. It's Rashad Holloway. Rashad, how are you? Good, sir?
3: I'm good, man. How about you?
1: Doing good. Hey, let's uh, back up a step. For folks who may not know you, I read out your bio there for just a second. What is your... uh, your combative background. How did we arrive in the position that we're talking today?
3: Accident. <laughs> no, but, uh, oh, man. 23 years of boxing. Man, I started at 8 years old. Um, I retired at 31. I boxed my whole life from Cincinnati, Ohio. Born and raised. Um, long amateur background. Well, I fought amateur for 14 years and 9 as a pro. Wow. So
1: uh, how did you end up coaching MMA fighters?
3: Really accident. I'm gonna be honest with you, like I never wanted to be a coach at all, like I hated it, like like, um, not really hated it, like I retired early. I retired like at the peak of my career by from an injury, so it it was kind of hard for me to put on the coach's hat. you know what I mean? I wasn't ready to hang up the gloves and accept the fact that I was a retired fighter it was it was kind of hard to deal with, but, um, just happened by accident, like um, my first fighter I had was I'm trying to remember, oh yeah. I was assistant coach for a boxer, Sean Porter. When he fought for the welterweight title, he beat Devin Alexander. Wow. I was assistant coach for that. Me and, we all grew up together. Me and his father were real close. So I, I was, um, like I said, assistant coach for that. The second one was um, Spencer Fisher, believe it or not. When he fought Sam Stout. The king, the yeah. It was so funny. Like I had a gym in West Hollywood, and I forgot how he found me, but he found me through somebody. And he was like, yo, you're a dope boxer. Like I really want to learn when you coach me. And I'm like... Okay, so I coached him, that was that, and um, I ended up um, being referred to Tony, Tony was looking for a boxing coach, and you know, his management at the time, who I've known for years, um, they reached out to me, to ask me would i take a look at him, He came to the wildfire, I took a look at him, he was real eager about boxing, didn't know anything about Tony, I was so oblivious to UFC, you know, um, that was just it, you know, I, I trained Tony a few times, and got him ready for the Barbosa fight, and just... Kept it going. We became close, Maybe it became more like a brotherhood, and just something that I just stuck with. I don't
1: know. So, aside from Spencer Fisher and Tony Ferguson, have you trained any other MMA fighters?
3: Yeah. No.
1: Just those Never. two. You still train? You still train other boxers, though, yeah?
3: No. No. Um, no. Honestly, I kind of walked away. Like I learned. They called me. They called me the Godfather or the Nazi. Uh, the, the, what do you call it now? My boy. Oh yeah. He, he always. My boy used to always call me. Um. Oh, anyway, I can't even think of it the down there. That's what fighting does to you over the years. But anyway, <laughs> now I just always, um I partnered up with some of my boys and we had a gym. So I got more into the fitness boxing aspect, but some of my boys, I trained a lot of athletes, um, talked them boxing, but some of my friends like world champion Demetrius Andrade, um, you name them. I mean, a bunch of a bunch of my friends that I grew up with boxing, when they come into LA and they come into town, I always end up training. them. They'll call me like, hey, let's get some, let's get some work in. So I always stay sharp working with, you know, top pros and stuff like that being in the game so long. But I never really wanted to be a coach. It just wasn't my thing.
1: Interesting. Oh, so, so you've been with Tony for what? Uh, four or five years? Something like that, if my math is right?
3: Uh, it's been like six. About six years. Yeah,
1: I guess that's right. 2014-ish, right? Because that's when the Barbosa fight was. Yeah. yeah, about six years. All right, so let's talk about this for just a second. Um... What have you learned about MMA striking that, uh, you know, was a bit of an adjustment, right? Because it it is, every every boxing coach I've talked to that's made the transition to coaching some MMA fighters, whether they coach a lot of them or just a few of them, they've often said, yeah, it's a little bit different. What is it a little bit different?
3: Um, It's real different. I mean, for one, you got to be real careful. Like, you all um, in the MMA world, they watch out for a lot more than we do. Like, we just watch out for punches, you know what I mean? We worry about a lot of punches. Like, our technique in boxing is a lot more precise and a lot more sharp than it is in MMA because they have so many other, so many other things to work on, you know what I mean? I mean, you got knees, you got elbows, you got kicks, you got takedowns, you know, it's, it's just too much. So, it, it's a big adjustment. Like, we're more angled, they're more square, and they have to be more square. So, that was one adjustment.
1: Why do they have, Why do they have to be more square? I mean, wouldn't you want to hit from angles no matter what?
3: No, 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 no. What I mean by that is your footstands. Like, uh. in, in the MMA world, like, depending on your fighting style, your wrestler, you know what I mean, if you're a grappler, if you're kickboxing, all the MMA fighters, they all fight pretty much different. Um, some of them fight similar, but they all have their own stands. Um, what I found more orthodox in MMA is more square, more squared up. They have an angle, you know what I mean, don't get me wrong, you're not. Flat out in front of each other like a wrestler, but they do have to be, they do have to have a more square stance to worry about so many different other things, from what I understand, mm. you know, just from what I've been told and what I see. They're not as angled as we are. Some of them are, but um, I think boxing is pretty much universal. Like MMA, it comes from the boxing world. You know, you take mixed martial arts, that's exactly what it is. That's you taking every martial arts and you put it together and make it your own fighting style. So MMA guys can't create boxing. Boxing is boxing. Like, there's one way to throw. You know, you got a couple ways to throw a jab. But what I'm saying is, it's a right way to throw a jab. A right way to throw a right hand. A Right way to throw an uppercut. A right way to throw a hook. It, it's just basic. Uppercut the same way. Yeah, like you take. You have certain attributes. You can add your own little flair with certain things, or you can create certain angles and throw things a little differently, or you mix the muay thai with it, and some of the punches are different. But textbook is textbook. Like you really don't change technique for the most part. You know. Hmm. So I just tend to. Stick to the basics, like a lot of the guys, like I say a lot of the rolling, a lot of rolling and dipping low, they really have to be worried, they really have to be worried about that, like that's kind of dangerous for a lot of those guys, like you can roll in MMA, but you have to know how to roll, you know, in boxing we don't roll and get too low, a lot of these guys I see them trying to roll and they get super low and they can run into their knees and other things, you know, which can cause problems, so it's pretty much textbook, but at the same time, you got to keep it real basic with MMA fighters.
1: You mentioned the rolling. It's interesting. I am seeing it more these days. They didn't hardly used to do it at all. You know, to throw a one-two and then roll to get out of the way. So what is your idea? In MMA, you can roll, but you have to be very careful about how low you dip to avoid potential new problems?
3: Yeah, I think it's the same way with boxing. Though. If you look at it, like boxing, like you only have a split-second to counter punch. No matter what it is, you only get a split-second to counter. Your countering, your countering ability is, is, is very limited. So... You got to take advantage of that split second so when you get when you take a deep roll, you lose it that's that's two seconds you lose it your roll has to be precise it has to be sharp it has to be slick basically the whole point of evading something is to make it miss by this much so you have the chance to counter if you make a miss by this much by that time their defense is up already you know what i mean right. so i think a lot of the mma guys they're focusing on boxing a lot more They're they're taking it more serious because if you look at it, it was like a backyard brawl until they got on the ground back in the day. Most of it was just like rock and sock and robot, you know? It was not a lot of technique involved, it was a lot of banging involved. And now you see guys, I see a lot of guys, and I really respect their striking in MMA. Like, I really didn't pay much attention to it until Tony. You know, I had a buddy of mine, um, like Ty Woodley, Mm. Um, he was in Strike Force, Eves Edwards, like those guys used to train with us at Wildcard. Even on. the great Anderson Silva used to train with us there. And um, Andre Avlowski, like those guys, I watched some guys. St. Pierre, when I was still fighting, those guys would come and train alongside us and study us and watch us. You know, so I watch those guys and they really respect boxing. And the guys that really do, you can really see because their game goes to another level.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it.
3: It's just some of them guys got the chin for it and some of them don't. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> It is what it is.
1: Yeah, you're seeing a lot more crossover. You saw like TJ Dillashaw spar with Lomachenko and, and some other ones as well. It's good to see that. MMA fighters take it a little more seriously now.
3: Yeah, they have to. I mean, you got to think because the majority of the fight is striking. Majority of the fight is striking. I mean, your whole stand-up, that's how it starts. You're going to end up on the ground, but a lot of times you end up on the ground through a mistake, through, through, through sloppiness, through whatever. But the majority of the fight is, is on the feet.
1: You know? Tony must be an interesting guy to train, right? Because here's a guy who can do it all. He's got a ridiculous gas tank. We've known that for a long time. But you know he's he keeps a frenetic pace. He's fighting in all the dimensions, almost uh, at the same time. You know, um, when you teach a guy like that boxing, I wonder what your approach must be. He's not a, he, even by MMA standards. He's not a normal fighter. <laughs> Yo,
3: Tony's interesting, man. Tony's like Tony's one of the most unorthodox guys. Tony reminds me of Manny Pacquiao. Like that was my old stablemate. So when me and Pacquiao I used to train together and spar together for years. Like Pacquiao did everything wrong. Like textbook, textbook, he he didn't do everything correctly. The way it's supposed to be done, he didn't. Like Pacquiao could be off his feet, could, could could be on his front leg and still hurt you. Like he he did things that just weren't textbook and it just worked. And Tony's like that. Tony's like one of them guys that he's just a freak, man. Like that guy's just. I, I don't say it because I train him, like I just say it because it's reality. Like that dude just. He does, he does things that they say you're not supposed to, and it works. He's just so unorthodox that it works for him, and That's what makes him him. You know what I mean? That's what makes him him. Like, as far as boxing, Tony respects boxing. Like, he grew up in Oxnard, so I don't know if you know much about Oxnard, but that's where Mikey Garcia, yep. Robert Garcia's are. Tony's father was was his boxing coach, and Robert Garcia trained him as well, who's Mikey Garcia's coach. So Tony came from a boxing background. I mean, Tony's an Tony's a Oxnard, full hardcore Mexican. You know what I mean? He, he 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 comes from a boxing background, so he understands and respects boxing. Of course, Tony Tony trained himself for a lot of years along the way, so Tony developed certain techniques, and that's what makes Tony a Tony. Because it's like he used his own will to get him to where he got to. Like as far as the whole winning the whole tough the whole tough competition, the TV show, Tony wasn't a a trained guy. He used to train with Coach Hoss as well in Oxnard, but Tony wasn't a well-oiled machine as far as like been shown all these abilities and all these skills. Tony was a wrestler at Grand Valley State, all American wrestler there. worked with worked boxing at Oxnard and that was pretty much it. He was green, he was raw. He was just all will, heart and determination. But he break dance or he does all these different things. So he just found his own niche and, and just put like took a bunch of ingredients and threw them all together and said, Look, this is me. You know what I mean? So for him, he likes boxing.
1: So when you stepped into the game, what did you think he needed?
3: I don't want to say guidance. Um, he's got, he had the heart, he had the ability, um, he had the will to train on his own. Like that guy would train all day if he loved him. Um, he just needed some knowledge, some, someone, someone that he respected. Someone that he respected with some knowledge that he knew could teach him something rather than someone who was just alone for the ride. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. That's it. Some, someone that he could trust, someone that he could trust, and he could also learn and grow with as well.
1: Imagine I had never seen Tony fight before. Obviously, I have. But imagine I hadn't. How would you describe his yeah. boxing style to someone?
3: Funky. <laughs> Funky. Um, he's long. He's lanky. He has the basics down. i packed. I tell people this every day. And I don't say this just because like I can say because I'm trying to. But Tony does not show you half the skill in his fights. Tony does not show you half his boxing skills in his fights. He doesn't show his Muay Thai skills, his boxing skills—he doesn't show. Does that mean he's not a skillful fighter? No, one hundred percent he is. Tony, Tony has a switch that you know, Tony turns on in that cage, and Tony just turns into an animal. It's—it's like he can win in so many different ways, and he enjoys—he enjoys banging, he enjoys banging, he enjoys taking your will, he enjoys breaking you. So it's kind of like I'm, like watching Tony. You would you would probably think. You'll see all these mistakes, chin up in the air. He does this, or he must not work on it. He works on it. He works on everything. But when he gets in that cage, Tony just reacts. And when he gets to the corner, you know, he listens to things. Like we tell him certain things. Even outside of the cage, he reacts right away. Like we tell him certain things and he, he gets back to it. But you know, sometimes you know Tony just Tony. Tony just fights. He loves to fight.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Uh what would you say are some of his best punches? He's got like a like a rangy kind of uh, almost like a shovel punch, like an uppercut kind of a thing that he lands at times. Right, he's got a good jab too. What, well, what, what? What would you say?
3: Oh, he's strong. Tony's a big puncher. Like, he's one of those guys that he's lanky, he's long, he has that strong core from a wrestling background, and he has humongous hands. Like when he hits, like we sparred before, when he hits, it hurts. Like I was speaking to my boy Victor Ortiz one time. And he said, "Yo, Tony can hit." Like I don't know if you know Victor Ortiz, but Victor Ortiz is sure. Him, and he falls- but, but he was like, "Yo, Tony can hit because he grew up with him in Arkansas training. Tony can really crap. Like, like I said, it's just a matter of sometimes he arm punches, but when he sits down and actually commits to a shot, he hurts you. Like he, he just, it's weird. Like he's got a long hook that hurts you. He's got his jab. You know, he's got a stiff, hard jab. His right hand is good. His uppercut is good. But I think his hook, his hook is his knockout shot.
1: You know, it's kind of funny too. You mentioned the hook, um, but." One thing that I've noticed over the years, and it it wasn't a dramatic change, it was one of those gradual things where if you didn't go back and watch old footage, you might not appreciate how much better it got. To your point, yes, sometimes he'll fight a little open, let's say, but when he's committed to fighting the way that he seems to have been shown, he's got good linear punches too, down the middle, straight, hard.
3: Look at the fight with Rafael Rafael Dostoevsky, look at that fight, like that was a boxing clinic. If you look at that fight, he pretty much took him to school just boxing, it was weird. I mean, Of course, he put a lot of Muay Thai kicking in as well, but... That fight, like, I was actually amazed. I'm watching him jab and right hands, and it was kind of textbook. You know, he, he just schooled him, took him to school. You know, it, it was just – he wanted to beat him standing on his feet easy, just box up. That's how he wanted to train and beat him that fight. I mean, he worked so much on a heavy bag. It was ridiculous. And he treated him like a heavy bag when he got in. <laughs> um,
1: okay. What do you know about his opponent, not this coming Saturday, but the following?
3: He's tough, man. He's – I'm going to be honest. He's a tough – he's an animal. Like – he reminds me of Tony in a lot of ways, you know, like, like when you look at those two and you look at those two styles, it's like, yo, you see fireworks. Like I respect him. You know, I think Justin Gage is a good fighter.
1: Let me ask you something about boxing and MMA fighters. And maybe this is a, a overgeneralization, so if you think it is, say so. But I'll, I've noticed, I, least, oh, okay. I think I have noticed, there are MMA fighters, even elite ones, are kind of willing to take more risk in a fight at times. Which double-edged sword, right? Sometimes it really backfires, but sometimes it really sets them up for great success because that's the nature of the risk. And Gaethje seems like one of those guys where he will just accept a certain amount of risk that, for example, even great fighters like Canelo, Cotto, I don't know, they just would not do.
3: It's it's different. Like um, I'm gonna say this. Like I try to explain this to guys. Like if you took a if you took an MMA fighter. Your best striker in excuse me in the UFC and put him in with the best boxer or one of the one of the best, even the top five boxers, he wouldn't last. If you took your world champion in boxing and you put him over in the UFC with even a lower-level fighter, he wouldn't last. Our training is so much is different, man. It's like you connect like it's like in, in the UFC and the MMA world, you're a jack of all trades. You know, you gotta be a jack of all trades. You don't have to be great at this, but you have to be good or decent in, in certain aspects so you can get by. Um, because it's how the fight game works. In boxing, if you watch, there's not many change of guards. Like, you watch the guys, the champions usually last and stick around for a while. You don't see as many change in the guards as you do in the UFC. I'm gonna say this because boxing is its so hard to explain. The instincts, the reflexes, like, it's so crazy. like. You're training, you gotta, but you got to remember, you're only training for one thing, and that's boxing. So guys have a lot more advantages. And you can't jump into boxing at 20 years old, 18 years old, and be and, and think you're going to become a world champion. It takes years to build those instincts and reflexes. You, 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 It's hard to explain, but it's so much more precise. It's so much more technical. And in boxing, you have zero room for errors. And guys are like, it's like a chess match. Like, watching two great boxers is like a chess match. It's not easy to hit a guy like it is in the UFC. It's really not easy. Like, UFC, you see a lot of these guys getting hit with certain shots. In boxing, you'd be lucky to hit a guy with three flood shots in one round. It's hard. I see. The elite level, it, it's just it's so hard. It's, it's, it's so hard to explain, but it's, it's different levels.
1: So because MMA is so much more offensively open-ended, it can go a thousand different directions, exactly. and because guys can't develop the same level of specific skill per each of those because it's just not possible, it actually allows for a little bit more risk-taking because there's just going to be more openings.
3: 100%. 100%. Yeah, you leave yourself open for so much, for so much in, the, in, in the MMA world. You know what i mean in boxing you're only open for an uppercut a jab a hook you know overhand shot like you're only open for certain things period in the MMA world you gotta you're open for a knee uh spinning backhand you know what i mean an elbow um list goes on you know what i mean right. a takedown you're open for everything it's, it's too hard you know that's why that's why ufc is so exciting like boxing boxing is one of those things where boxing is exciting people get excited off a fight like oh it was a great fight, but boxing was never designed for that. Boxing was a sport, it was a chess match. I mean, you take boxing back to the old ancient days, and boxing was a sport that got people out of poverty, you know? So, boxing should always be respected because it's a chess match. It takes a person with great skills. Like, if you took two guys, like like boxing, like having a guy that's a professional boxer is like putting up, it's like having a guy that goes to the gun range every now and then, and a guy that goes and, and, and is a sharpshooter, a marksman. The marksman's got a big advantage over the guy. Like, it's not even a comparison. So taking a boxer to a guy who practices boxing on the MMA world and works on it, no comparison. It's well, not even
1: close. So here's why I asked that. It's because Gaethje had a, a bit of a rough run in his first three fights. He won one. He lost two against guys who are more technical, Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier. And then he kind of switched his style up, and he's won three in a row all in the first round, Barboza being one of them, Cowboy being another. Um, sure. Still, though, he looks to me like a guy, even though he's cleaned up a lot of his defensive issues, he's one of these guys who I think makes calculated moves on risk, takes the risk, and then gets the reward from it, and I'm wondering, how do you beat a guy who's not afraid of risk? you
3: have to see, man. I'm going to be honest with you. A guy like him, Gaethje is... Gaethje didn't change. I looked at all his fights... Geachy's been the same beast he's been. Like gechi has, Gaethje tells you right away. He says you're gonna. He said I'm gonna knock you out, or you're gonna knock me out. And in the beginning, he didn't care. He didn't care about being a world champion. He just wanted to be exciting. You see certain guys who really love it. He loves the pain. He he loves to fight like that. Like he doesn't want to fight unless it's like that. He doesn't even want to go to the ground. Every time you see a guy go to the ground, he's like get up. You know he stuffs him and he pops up. He does not want to go to the ground. He wants to strike. That's it. Um, a guy like him, he's he, he can he can either be his own greatness or his own worst enemy. And um, I think if you look at the fights, Dustin Poirier and um, Eddie Alvarez, I mean, it was two fifty-fifty fights. You look at those fights, Gaethje wasn't Gaethje wasn't losing in those fights. In my eyes, he wasn't. You know, those fights could have gone either way. Both sides were taking punishment. You know, the Poirier fight was Poirier took Poirier's legs. Poirier's legs were killing him so many different times. He was, was killing him on strikes. Poirier was killing him, going to his body. I think what Eddie Alvarez and, and um, Poirier did best, they went to his body, what other guys haven't had the chance of doing. They went to his body big time, and they, they were able to soften him up a bit with that, but to be honest, it was just the luck of the draw, um, as far as him and Eddie Alvarez, they just happened to beat him to the punch, because mm. those fights, both guys were hurt and taking beatings throughout the whole fight, so it was just, you know, at that point, it was whoever called who. I think as far as Barbosa and everybody else I think um I think I think Poirier and Eddie Alvarez weren't how can I say this I'm not a disrespectful guy because I respect every fighter being a former fighter myself I never like to call I got shot but um they aren't guys that have been through a lot of wars you know what I mean like if you look at the guys that he fought, like cowboys and cowboys been through a lot of wars Barbosa's been through a lot of wars you know what I mean and um I don't know the tall kid. He fought that he knocked out. He
1: just clogged him. Yeah, Vic, yeah, Vic,
3: clogging him. But um, you know, he happened to catch him at the right time. That guy was putting up a good little fight in the beginning. But um, I think those guys. I think the Eddie Alvarez and the Poirier's were a lot sharper. I think they were a lot hungrier. I think they were a lot, lot more youthful as far as, as far as wars in the ring, and they could withstand a lot more punishment. You know what I mean? They were able to take a lot because Eddie Alvarez and Poirier took punishment, like those fights were like, oh, it was wars. Like, I, I've been watching those fights over and over and over and over. And it's just, Gacy's just, man, he, the dude is just, he, he's just an animal. You know what I mean? He comes with that one purpose to knock you out and get knocked out. It doesn't change. I mean, every fight is like that. He's exciting. He's aggressive. And, I mean, that's that's what you get from him. You know what I mean? And I think when you look at, when you look at a guy like Tony, what do you see from Tony? Like you tell me what do you see from Tony fight like, wise? Wow. Jesus.
1: Th- yeah, uh, let's see. He's rangier. So that's going to be interesting to see. Um he uh here's the here, here's the one thing I saw. The Poirier fight ended at the beginning of the 4th. The Alvarez fight ended at the uh, end of the 3rd. So right around that 14 to 16 minute mark is where he fell in both of those occasions. So I wonder I don't know, but I wonder if that's like a threshold you push through 15 minutes you might get there. Tony fought Dos Anjos in Mexico City in the fucking sky and did not gas. Amazing, right? So he's going to have a better gas tank. That, I think, is a fact. He's rangier. I do think he hits harder. The only thing that sort of stands to me is that, like, uh, Gaethje has gotten a little bit better about finding his way to the inside, and he'll slam a shot home. And at that point, you know, with those little ass gloves, doesn't take a whole lot after that.
3: You're 100% right. I mean, I think you're talking about two guys you can't prepare for. That's why I asked you that. Yeah. Those are two guys that you really can't prep for. Like Gaethje, you can say everything you want to say about him. You can get ready for this. Listen, at the end of the day, you can come up with a game plan, have that in play, stick to it, and it's Tony's job to adapt in the ring when that game plan doesn't work. But I don't believe in having one game plan. I believe in fighters adapted. I don't believe in game plans. I believe you cannot train like... People, some people disagree with me and some and some don't, you know. I mean, some people do disagree with me and some do, you know. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you really can't prep. Like, you really can't prep for one specific thing from a fighter, like, especially in the MMA world. Like, you could say, oh, I think he's going to do this. I think he's going to do that. Freddie Roach, my old coach, told me something and it hit home. He said, fighters are creatures of habit. He said, you ever see a guy and you double jab, and every time he double jabs, he steps back. Every time he throws his right hand, he'll drop this. Every time he throws his punch, he'll step over here. Like, I had to think about it. And fighters are creatures of habit. They're not mistakes. Fighters don't make mistakes. It's a habit. We do things because normally is what we do. Like, I have sometimes watch guys. They'll throw a certain combination. They'll come back. They'll bounce three times. And then they'll come back. And they'll bounce three times. Hmm. And come back, bounce three times. It's a habit. That's something they can't change overnight. You know, so when I look at a guy... If I'm a plan for something or if I'm gonna do anything, I'm gonna look for one habit that he has. One habit that I see that he does over and over and over and over. And I'm gonna say, look, we can do this when that happens. Other than that, everything else has to be done in the cage from you adapting. Like I believe when you train, when you train right, when you train on all your technical skills, when you train to the best of your ability, hard, when you, when you don't cut any corners. And you make sure that you're the most technically sound, profound fighter you can be. I think you're good. Now there are certain small things that you can do, like if you have a guy that that has horrible foot movement, you work on your footwork. You work on making him turn, and move, and follow you more. You know what I mean? You, you you work on his weaknesses, but at the same time, like I said, fighters are creatures of habit, and I believe that at the end of the day, you really can't prep for certain guys. Well you really can't prep for people the way people think you can. Oh, we got this perfect game plan. Like I said, you can you can prepare for certain habits that he has, but at the end of the day, you gotta train to just be be the best that you can be on that day. You know what I mean? And at the end of the day, it's up to that fighter. Like every fight I've had, like we would have a game plan to do certain things based on habits he had, but it was up to me to adapt. And when I came to the corner each round, my coach had to tell me what he saw. So that's what i believe that's what the change is done when he comes to that corner like we have to be able to tell him what we see the things that we see he can exploit other than that he has to be able to adapt in that ring
1: last question about this i'll let you go i really appreciate your time it's been a great conversation i wonder what your perspective as a boxing coach might be on leg kicks which is both something tony does well as well as justin gaethje is there any kind because obviously there's no leg kick in boxing kickboxing yes but not boxing but um, is there anything, as a boxing coach, you see as a potential solution for an opponent who might have that as a part of their arsenal?
3: The only thing I can say is, you know, I always say that's out of my pay grade. Like, I don't, I don't really work on the whole kicking part, but the only thing that kind of makes sense to me is I work on balance. And if you're not set, you can't be kicked. And what I mean by that is, if you have a guy that likes to kick, every time you see him getting ready to set, like there's certain things I, I notice a guy does when he kicks. And one, he has to be set to kick. You keep a guy off balance, he can't kick. You know, you keep him guessing, he can't kick. Also, your own footwork. If you have a guy kicking with his right leg all the time, what does that mean? You move to your right. Take that right leg away from him. If, you, if, if he kicks with that right leg, why would you move left and walk right to his right to his right kick? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You have to be able to set back. You have to be able to be in and out real quick with your feet as well. Those are things that you can do. Those, those are the things that keep a guy off set that likes to kick. That's pretty much all you can do from a boxing standpoint now as far as the blocking and everything else. Like I said, it's out of my pay grade. <laughs> That's up to the Muay Thai coaches and all of them. But I mean, it's pretty basic when you think about it. Like, it's like a car. How can a car turn left? A car turns left basically by getting to the light. Turning left on the steering wheel It's pretty basic. The car has to be grounded. It has to be able to do that to move. Like, in order for a guy to be able to rotate his legs to kick, he has to be grounded. He has to be set. He has to be able to do that. Now, if you move, or if you do anything to keep him on balance, he can't kick.
1: Interesting. Uh, Rashad, I really appreciate this conversation. I'm looking forward to May 9th. I don't know who the hell's going to win, but I know it's going to be one hell of a battle. And uh, I always like talking to coaches. I think are some of the most interesting people in the sport, and I've really profited from this conversation. So thank you for making some time for us. It's
3: going to be fireworks, man. Like, man, you, you guys are great. Like, the UFC world, the fans are great. I just – you know, I know they're gonna get what they pay you for. It's gonna be an exciting fight, man. You got two warriors going at it, and it's fireworks. You got Fourth of July early.
1: <laughs> I guess we certainly yeah. do. Thank you so much, Rashad. Have a great day. You too, man. Take it easy. All right.
0: Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from three to six p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation channel one fifty six. On Twitter, follow at lthomasnews and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.